The Great Swamp Massacre had drawn the Narragansett tribe and colonial Rhode Island into King Philip's War. One of the Narragansett leaders, Conanchet, brought together several tribes to form two armies under his command. One army fought in Massachusetts, attacking and destroying settlements in the central part of the state. The southern army focused on Rhode Island, burning towns along Narragansett Bay. On March 26, on March 26, I can't say that. On March 26, 1676, a Bay Colony militia led by Captain Michael Pierce headed to what is now Cumberland, Rhode Island, to confront the tribe. Approximately 60 colonists and 20 Wampanoag followed what they thought to be some wounded Narragansett towards a bend in the Blackstone River. The militia, having been lured into an ambush, was outnumbered by up to a thousand warriors of several tribes. Rescuers later came upon a grisly sight, the bodies of nine men that had survived the ambush, but were tortured, killed, scalped, and left atop a small hill. Their bodies were buried where they were found, and a stone cairn was erected to mark the location of their grave. Welcome to episode 8 of the Tales, Trails, and Taverns podcast. I'm your host, George Linus, and this week I'm following up with the last episode and some of the events that happened after the Great Swamp Fight. 40 miles north in the town of Cumberland, Rhode Island, is the Cumberland Monastery Park. The monastery, originally built by the Trappist monks between 1900 and 1930, is now a library. And the land that was once used by the monks for self-sustainability has several miles of trails enjoyed daily by the locals. This past week, I took the opportunity to hike a few miles of the trails and see how popular it is. Even as the sun was setting, people were eagerly taking a stroll, admiring the sunset over the wildflower fields, and walking their beloved dogs through the autumn woods. I probably say this too much already, but New England fall foliage is just, it's magical. It's so amazing. It's that low-lying sun spreading through the yellow leaves that just absolutely does it for me. Beautiful glow to the forest. I love walking through it. And the smell, honestly, does it get any better than fall in New England? I had always read that Captain Pierce was led into a bend in the Blackstone River. But I think the first time I visited the park, I only walked out to the marker and back to my truck again. This time, having taken a longer route to the park, I started to see all the wetlands in the area. Of course, legend says that you know Narragansett chased the survivors some distance before finally catching them, or took them some distance before finally killing them, depending on the source. So who knows if that's where the fight actually happened. I haven't been in the library itself. But from what I've seen through pictures, it's gorgeous. The areas that they that they use are absolutely beautiful. Vaulted ceilings, stained glass windows, original to the structures still stand. The monks originally came to Cumberland after their monastery in Nova Scotia burned down in 1892, was rebuilt, and burned again in 1896. Bad, bad luck there, guys. That seems like a sign that you need to get up and get out of wherever you're at. Just it. Things just keep burning down, which ends up being kind of funny, actually. They purchased land in Cumberland, and construction began in 1900. The main building was finished in 1930. They ended up staying there another 20 years until, in a cruel twist of fate, fire destroyed almost everything they had in 1950. The outer walls of the main building remained, but the monks sold the property to the town and relocated to Spencer, Massachusetts. 
There they built St. Joseph's Abbey, where they are to this day. I don't know if it's the energy that exists because people know the legend, or if it's just because I know the legend, but when I get on that trail and start heading towards the monument, the mound, the air feels heavy. Sense of foreboding, I think. There's a sense of being watched. Sense of not being alone. And it's interesting how on such a popular trail you can find yourself completely alone. When I got out of my Jeep and I started onto the gravel trail, there seemed to be cars and people everywhere, all around me. Coming back from a walk, getting ready for a walk. There was a couple ladies watching the sunset over the first field they came across. I passed a few people walking their dogs. On It's only a half mile or so to the marker itself. But once there, no one. I mean, there were, sure there were flowers and other things left on the rock marker, but obvious that people had been there but there was no one who walked up the hill while I was there no one passed along the main trail while I took pictures and videos of the area most of the other trails in the area didn't feel that heavy either in fact the rest of the trails seemed to feel very safe except of course for those few instances that I felt not entirely safe at one point I noticed this white mist in the woods but that was most likely just evaporating water from the still warm creek running through the thickest parts of the woods. Then in a field where I felt as if I was being followed, I quickly, took, uh, I quickly spun around and took a few pictures behind me because it really felt like something was there watching me. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I feel it sometimes and my first reaction is to take a picture. Then... As I was looking at my phone trying to figure out how far it was to the parking lot and whether or not I made the wrong turn, I suddenly heard footsteps behind me. And let me tell you, I know that, that woman, she was just going for a run, but I almost jumped out of my skin at that point. She scared the crap out of She scared the actual crap out of me. I mean, look, who goes running through a trail as the sun is setting? The sun had was it was after it was after sunset. It was getting dark. She's running down this gravel trail and she is all dressed in black. No flashlights, no reflective gear, no bright yellow, just all bl- like if you were to put a lineup up and try to see who the murderer is, it's the woman running through the dark dressed all in black. She's either running towards somebody or from something. And thankfully she wasn't running at me because, you know, I was just minding my own business. And so now the funny thing about the pictures that I took in the field, I got back to my house later that night and I started looking through them. And I always do this when I go to a place and I know there's legends and stories of ghosts or things in the woods or things on the road or anything. If I find something and it says and there's stories about it being haunted, I like to take pictures. If I feel like there's something there, I take a picture of it. And I've taken probably hundreds or thousands of pictures and not seen anything. There's nothing in the picture. But there was that one time in a bar down in Wilmington. Got a creepy feeling. Turned around. Took a picture. And at the next bar, there it was. Nice little shadow figure right at the end of the bar. Right where we had gotten a creeped out feeling. And my ex-wife had felt water dripping on her shoulder. It's a whole other story. But, uh. Yeah, sometimes you catch stuff. So I'm looking at the pictures when I get back to my house, kind of zooming in, and 
No kidding, I took three pictures pretty much in the same spot. Far away on the edge of the tree line, I see this thing, and it's kind of like a shape, like a head and shoulder shape along the tree line. So I move it to the next picture. I zoom into the same spot, and it's not there anymore. I mean, granted, it could be a leaf. It could be a twig. You know, it was so far away from me, like... And I could have moved a foot or two, you know what I mean? It could have been anything. But it, it, I jumped back and forth between those pictures a few times that I didn't see that thing in another spot, you know what I mean? Like I was looking at what else was there or what kind of moved around a little bit and I didn't see that same image in a different spot in the other pictures. I only saw that image of the head and shoulders in that one spot. I put it on Instagram. I did a whole little thing where I went through the pictures and I was like, what is that? Do you see that? What is that thing? Because I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? I'm probably not. The picture probably doesn't prove the existence of ghosts. It is what it is, man. After the break, let me tell you all about the history and the legend of the Nine Men's Misery. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows So I've been reading a little bit about the battle, Captain Pierce, on 26th of March, 1676. And I'm going to read some of the stuff I found here on scholarworks.umb.edu about the battle itself. So on the Sunday morning of 26th March, 1676, Captain Pierce assembled his full recruit of men on the Rehoboth Village Green. Having ascertained an approximation of the enemy's whereabouts the previous evening, the entire troop marched across the Seekonk Plain toward the Pawtucket, Seekonk River. The company, according to Noah Newman, consisted of two officers, five guides recruited from the town who were familiar with the surrounding area, and a minimum of 49 soldiers and 11 friendly Indians. Pierce's company was also supported by two pack animals and was loaded with supplies. It doesn't seem that there's any record of what they were equipped with and what they were carrying. They assume that they were carrying about the same amount of gear that the colonists were carrying when they marched into South Kingstown during the Great Swamp Fight. Goes on to say that although there is no record of the specific route taken from that Sunday taken that Sunday morning, we do know that there were a number of trails and wagon paths from Rehoboth Village to the parallel of the Pawtucket River or bisected the Seekonk Plain. Upon reaching the Pawtucket River, Blackstone River, the command continued north toward Abbott's Run, a small tributary of the Pawtucket I'm sorry, a small tributary of the Pawtucket River that enters from the east less than two miles above the Pawtucket Falls. By following the eastern riverside, the troop would have commanded the higher ground in which many places rise, which in many places rises from 20 to 30 feet above its counterpart. In addition, with a minimum of foliage and river vegetation during March, the company would have had a clear view to the west. This view would have been further enhanced once the troop approached Abbott's Run, where the western landscape begins a gentle climb to a central ridge one half mile distant. 
Somewhere in the vicinity of Abbott's Run, the colonial force came upon a group of four or five Indians who, upon seeing that they had been discovered, attempted to flee. The English gave chase and managed to keep the enemy within sight. English war, the English were aided in their pursuit, at least in part, by the fact that one or more of the warriors was limping, as if wounded or lame. So this is the part where they were following what they thought was a wounded native. Their progress at one point actually came to a halt. Finally, the small band of warriors, obviously desperate to avoid death or capture, jumped to the river and forded across to the western bank. The English, fully committed to the chase, followed closely behind. The crossing was not a particularly easy one. The river, cold and often at its highest in March, was severe enough that part of the company's gunpowder was rendered useless by the moisture. Scrambling up and away from the river, the English continued to give chase. Suddenly, a body of about 500 warriors who had been hiding in wait revealed themselves. At this point in, in the confrontation, a very fierce fight began. Captain Pierce must have done an exemplary job in keeping his command from fragmenting during the chase because their initial volleys forced the Indians into a retreat. Although apparently... The ground gained by the English was negligible. Before long, the main body of Indians was strengthened by an additional 400 combatants. At this point, the trap had been successfully sprung, and the majority of the colonists had only a few hours left to live. After the colonial advance had been rebuffed and halted, Captain Pierce, in order to secure the best possible position against such overwhelming odds, had his command fall back to the river with the hope of preventing the company from becoming surrounded. This was a standard military maneuver and initially a sound decision by the captain. However, during or shortly after the retreat, the natives crossed the river to the east, a move which effectively eliminated any further retreat while allowing the warriors to harass the colonists from all directions. So Pierce's strategy, one he thought would be to his greatest advantage, proved his overthrow. Following their retreat, the troops cast themselves into a circle that was double, double distance all around. Once again, Captain Pierce, or whoever was then in command, made a solid tactical decision. A recurring problem with the United Colonies' manner of forced warfare was that soldiers often grouped too closely together. This was a fact not lost on one Indian who observed that often it is as easy to hit them as to hit a house. By spreading his troops, the command would have presented a more formidable profile to the enemy while at the same time helping to prevent his soldiers from bunching together. A similar strategy had been used early in the war with great success by Benjamin Church at the Peace Field Fight. While the soldiers were hurriedly putting together their defensive placements, Noah Newman related that they were slowly being enclosed by a great multitude of the enemy. Nathaniel Saltonstall wrote that the Indians were as thick as they could stand 30 deep. This description of the enemy as being 30 deep tends to convey the impression that the enemy immediately launched a massive assault on the colonists one in which the Indians were virtually stumbled over one another to reach the English. With the retreat no longer an option, the company's best chance of survival was to prevent the enemy from moving within its effective killing distance by maintaining a heavy and consistent rate of fire. And, at least for a time, their initial salvos checked the, checked the Indian threat. Still, the gravity of the situation could not have eluded many of the soldiers. They were outnumbered, unable to better their position, and their captain, severely wounded in the opening firefight, would have been a little use in rallying his command. Adding the soldier's stress with the Indian practice of keeping up a constant stream of yelling and shouting across the battlefield. This was a practice that was commonly used during a siege for intimidation and possibly to force their opponents into the open. The English persisted in their defense for perhaps as long as two hours. Finally, condition reached a point such that the company's defense was no longer effective. The natives, perceiving this, ran upon them, killing some and seizing others. Others of the soldiers fought their way through the Indians and although struck by bullets, ran away and got home. Interesting. 
From Harris's description, we learned that at least part of the company did not hold the skirmish line until the last man. The weight of the final assault induced disintegration within some of the command, sending those combatants fleeing for their lives. Sometime after Pierce's fight was over, rescue party came across the bodies of nine men who were scalped and possibly tortured before they were killed. This is where the nine men's misery monument is as they buried the bodies and stacked a pile of rocks on top of it as a memorial to the slain soldiers. So what's interesting is there's not a lot of there's not a lot of facts as to the legend of nine men's misery, except for in seventeen ninety, some medical students started to dig up the bodies to study their anatomy, but outraged locals stopped them. This is according to New England Historical Society. Uh, the bodies were then reburied, the rocks reassembled, and the myth of nine men's misery continued. Uh, later in the 1900s, when the Trappist monks bought the property and started to build a monastery on it, they took the pile of rocks and cemented it on the alleged site of the Nine's Men's Misery, and the Rhode Island Historical Society placed a marker next to it. The marker reads, Nine Men's Misery, on this spot where they were slain by the Indians, were buried the nine soldiers captured in Pierce's fight March 26, 1676. According to this article in the New England Historical Society, in 2011, a graduate student named Lawrence LaCroix investigated the facts surrounding Pierce's fight, found no evidence written or archaeological to support an association with Captain Pierce, the King's Philip War, or even the 17th century, talking about the Nine Men Misery Monument. LaCroix concluded the Nine Men's Misery was mostly legend, but it had some semblance of truth. Found someone, he found that someone unearthed skeletal remains somewhere in Cumberland, probably a mile south of Nine Men's Misery. Then around 1790, after the medical students went grave digging, someone reburied the bodies at or near Nine Men's Misery. Soon after the monks bought the property in 1900, the bodies were once again disinterred. The Rhode Island Historical Society accepted them and kept them in the basement of the John Brown House, which it owns. Then in 1976, the remains of the nine bodies were ceremonially reburied elsewhere. Whether or not the monument that stands on the grounds of the Cumberland Library and the Monastery Park actually have bodies underneath them, or what, according to this article, they don't, um, and whether or not those bodies that were there had anything to do with Pierce's fight is completely unknown. What is there is the legend that... People hear the moans and screams of men in the woods in and around that area. Maybe certain times of year, I don't, I don't really know. It's also known that I get a serious sense of foreboding when I walk down that trail towards that monument. So, whether or not there's any truth to it, the legend is there. Thank you so much for joining me on what has become more of a dive into actual history than any of my other podcast episodes have been so far. Follow us on follow me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. I think I'm still on TikTok. I haven't posted anything in a while, but it's there. Make sure to follow the podcast. Thank you. Have a good night. Big shout out to Beyond the Shadows podcast and the Spiritual Sisters podcast for uh, deciding that they need to send me some sage for the stories that I've sent them. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. As always, get out in the woods and find your spirits.